Welcome to We Gotta Talk, a live weekly talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. From health to relationships to alternative lifestyles and more, the one thing you will always get is a deep dive. I'm Sunny, a 15-year veteran of TV news, freelance writer, blogger, mom of three, and wife. But most of all, I'm just a die-hard oversharer, someone who's genuinely curious about, well, everything around me. And I can't wait for you to join in on these conversations that I promise will impact, inspire, and entertain you. Now, let's talk. Hey, everybody, and welcome to We Gotta Talk, real talk on big topics. I am Sunny, and I am so, so glad you're here for this week's episode, because guess what? It's the best of the best. It's the most listened to episodes, the most um, memorable and impactful guests, and we're putting them all in one place for you. So how about that? Um, Let me start off by saying, if you have been with me since the beginning of this podcast, it just hit its two-year birthday a couple of months ago. Thank you. If you're new, welcome. Um, We went through a rebrand this year. We meaning I frequently like to refer to myself in the plural tense because it makes me feel um, a little better about myself. You know, not just the person who randomly talks to herself in a closet. Anyhow, used to be 30 something. It is now we got to talk and we have been going strong on this new show and branding since September. So it's been a wild year on like the sort of behind the scenes part of the show as well. Um, this to say nothing of the personal life stuff that's been, hold on my bracelet. Okay. Thank you. There you go. There's 2020 for you. You try to be productive and your kid walks in on you. Listen, this was a very challenging year uh, for many reasons, and I'm glad to see it come to a close. But to be honest, we had some really, really great moments on the show and in life in general where I feel like we all grew together. So in the spirit of getting better for 2021 and kind of putting on our spiritual armor to feel like better people, um, we have compiled a list of some amazing guests. Now, This isn't to say that everyone who's been on the show hasn't been awesome and amazing. I have enjoyed every single second, but I tried to pare it down to episodes that could be good little tidbits and nuggets, little takeaways for you to bring into 2021 that help strengthen you mentally, physically, spiritually, maybe give you a good reminder, a good piece of advice. So you'll hear me pop in throughout the course of this episode, introducing whatever guest you're about to hear from next. So the biggest hug from me to you as we close out 2020. Thank you for being with me and let's get into it. The best of 2020. All right, let's kick off with one of the most downloaded episodes of 2020. And I think this resonated because so many of us feel so crazy right before our periods. This is with Dr. Carrie Jones, a hormone expert. And we did an entire episode on why hormones might be the most ignored yet one of the most important parts of your overall health. In this episode, we break down how your hormones and your thyroid and your adrenal systems are all closely related and how they impact all of the symptoms you may be experiencing, whether it's exhaustion, weight gain, or just otherwise not feeling like your normal self. You are going to love all of the good information that Dr. Jones has in this episode, 
and here's a short clip. Let's talk about the environmental factors after listening to several of the podcasts that you've been guests on and reading some of the articles that you have put out. I know that you are a big believer, as am I, that environment impacts our overall health so much. So when you're talking about things that impact our hormones as well, what exactly is interacting with our body, whether it be from our diet or our environment or even the, the, the items that we're eating our, you know, to-go food out of that is, that's messing with our hormones like this. And messing is is absolutely the right word because um, what people don't realize is that when you, like let's take estrogen, which is a prime example. When you make estrogen as a woman in your body, in order for it to do anything, it has to bind onto what's called an estrogen receptor. So it's a lock and key, right? Estrogen is the key. The receptor is the lock. You turn it, the door opens and things happen. But unfortunately, other things can bind to that receptor too. So the plastics that come out of your container that you got to go food in or the hot water bottle that's been you know, sitting in your car that you bought out of the convenience store, um, the chemicals that you use for cleaning your house or um, to make your your car smell better, Um, all those things that they spray on our foods, you know, to kill um, pesticides and fungus and stuff like that, all of those things look close enough to estrogen, and so the key fits in the lock. So maybe you don't want the door to open, but yet all of these things can open your door, and now they set off a cascade of events you don't want, like weight gain and hair loss and PMS and heavy periods and pregnancy issues, fertility issues, uh, mood issues, sleep issues, you know, energy issues. Like it just goes on and on and on. And so these environmental, um, factors where people are like, Oh, one plastic water bottle is not such a big deal. But over time, if you do it often, if you often heat in plastic, if you often get your to-go food in plastic, if you often use these chemicals on your body, in your house, you know, on your car, what have you, um, you're eating foods that are sprayed, then all these doors keep getting open and you, and as a result, you have hormonal chaos. You feel like, you know, hurting cats when it comes to your symptoms. Would you say that the majority of women these days are impacted by this? And is there anyone with normal levels considering the exposure <laughs> that we all likely get? Unfortunately, the people I talk to are the people that are struggling, right? So in my view, the majority of women and men too, I mean, I know this is primarily aimed at, at women, but men are just as affected. Um, they're really struggling. They're really struggling. There's not much, there's not much who feel that normal out there. And I am, hormones are my thing. And I actually work for a company that tests hormones and I still will get, I get PMS Mm -hmm. sometimes. Right. And I get menstrual migraines and sometimes I get that period that's super heavy out of nowhere. And I'm like, what is this? What happened? And sometimes it's nothing I did and everything environmental. And sometimes it's definitely something I did. Like I ate all the chocolate and I drank all the wine and I stayed (laughs) up too late and I'm, my hormones are punishing me as a result. I love the, uh, you did an interview with Dr. G on his uh, Heal Thyself podcast mm-hmm. recently. You were talking about all alcohol is bad alcohol. I don't care if it's <laughs> sugar-free, you know, tequila or like the best organic wine in the world, um, which I'm sure disappoints a lot of people. But you hit on so many points there. The All of the, the myriad factors that influence our health, it can feel overwhelming to someone to try to overhaul everything. I'm such a proponent of, you know, trying to fix one thing at a time, you know, your cosmetics and your self-care and then your cleaning products and whatever. I just feel so lucky that we're in a world to have access to the information that you're putting out because I do think this sounds like an issue that women have struggled with for years and years, decades and decades, and they were probably going to their doctor saying, hey, I feel this way. And the doctors were saying, no, 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 this is nothing or you're crazy. But the bottom line is we women know 
when something is off. And I cannot tell you how many women who, who submitted questions for today's episode, which we will get to later, who said, I have felt some sort of way for the longest time. And all my doctor kept saying is, no, you're fine. And I know I'm not fine. I'm sure you hear that all the time. All the time. And I tell women, trust your intuition. You know your body better than anyone else. I don't care if you're in the healthcare field or not in the healthcare field. You know nothing about health. You sure as heck know when something is off or wrong because we are creatures of habit and pattern. And when our habits and patterns are changing, you know, we notice when our cycles are changing. We notice when our cycles are either getting longer or shorter. We have more PMS, less PMS. Our breasts are getting bigger. Our weight is going up. Our hair is falling out. Like our eyelashes and eyebrows are getting thinner. Like we notice this because it's our every day. Mm -hmm. And I tell women all the time, don't discount that. That is, this is a concern. And when you go in for that, you know, 10 minute appointment with your primary care doctor and it's not, it's, it's not their fault. They just have, they only have 10 minutes and it's not their training. And so they might look at you and just be like, no, no, it's, that's what happens when you have kids. It's like, okay, but common doesn't mean normal. Right. Right. And so that's what I'm constantly trying to help women understand is, sure, it's really common to feel that way maybe after birth or breastfeeding or having multiple kids under the age of five, for sure. But it doesn't mean it's normal or that's how you have to live. What are the first steps then? Say someone comes to, I know you're not currently taking patients yourself, but you work with a ton of doctors and you advise doctors. So say a woman comes in and says, listen, I have at least half of those. I want to know exactly what's going on. Let's talk specific tests that you recommend and next yes. steps, because, um, I think, I think you're, you, we have a lot of the audience sort of nodding in agreement right now. <laughs> and when it comes, I, exactly. I tell women tests, don't guess, right? Don't, don't do a questionnaire online. And the questionnaire is like, Oh, it sounds like you have estrogen problems. And then you go in on Amazon and buy all the supplements because it is, you now understand they all overlap and it may not just be estrogen. So what I say is to test. Now, when you're looking at testing, we want a lot more comprehensive testing, which requires you to find a doctor or a practitioner, a healthcare practitioner that does a lot more comprehensive approach and who will look at, for example, in the thyroid, not just the main basic thyroid marker, which many know is thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH, but you want a full panel. You want to look at the free markers, which are called free T4 and free T3. You want to look at the antibodies to see if it's possible you have autoimmune, which is called Hashimoto's. When it comes to your female hormones, you want to make sure you're testing at the right part of your cycle. Many women will see their doctor on a Tuesday at one o'clock and they'll go get their blood drawn and then they'll say, well, what does this mean? And I'm like, well, Tuesday at one o'clock doesn't tell me much, but I need to know what day of your cycle you're in because your estrogen and progesterone change depending if you're close to your period, close to ovulation or on the other side. So timing is everything when it comes to, to those hormones. We want to look at your androgen hormones. These are the hormones that are like testosterone and DHEA. These help you with things like energy and mood and muscle building. So if you're losing muscle and your mood is not that good and you're really tired, and it also helps with with your libido, right? So if your libido is faltering, then we want to make sure we look at these hormones too. And what's frustrating to me is that some, um, you know, just conventional doctors, conventional practitioners are like, oh, you know, men need testosterone, women don't. So we're not going to test that. Like, no, 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 no. We don't need as much as men, but we absolutely need it. And we need it through our whole lifetime. It's very important for our brain health, for our bone health, for our heart health, for our reproductive health. And so 
I don't want to miss out on that when it comes to testing. Mm -hmm. And finally, we look at cortisol because cortisol is really what's driving. Can you sleep? Do you have energy? How are you handling your blood sugar? Things like that. This next clip is from my interview with survivor and activist Alicia Kozak. This was a very serious topic and one of the most listened to podcast episodes I did this year because her story is frankly uh, so intense. Alicia was kidnapped as a 13-year-old from her suburban neighborhood near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and lived through a nightmare of assault and abuse until she was rescued in a sting operation, thanks to an online tip. We talk about her story of survival and how to talk to your kids and protect them from online threats. A warning, this episode may be triggering for survivors of abuse. We have to first go back to 2001, 2002. And people, when they hear my story, often they'll say, well, how did you not know better? There's all this information now. How did you not know better? How could something like this happen? Well, back in 2001, 2002, there was no internet safety education. There was nobody talking about this. The internet was incredibly new. And I can remember that my brother, who is nine years older than me, who I believe actually went to high school with you for a brief moment there. Yeah. Yep. Kind of crazy. Small world. He would play these games online, and it to me looked like a board game. And I thought that's so cool that you could have your friends play a game with you and that you didn't have to ask if they could come over. You didn't have to worry about them getting home. You didn't have to worry about any of that. They were already there. And that's how I looked at it. I was like, oh, this is a board game. How cool. And then I would play these games, which weren't online, but you had to feed and dress like cats and dogs and stuff, like little kid stuff. And it was super fun and comfortable. And how old were you at the time, Alicia? Remind us of that. So I was 12 and then 13 when all of this was going on. And then I can remember in school, my friends no longer wanted to go to the park or the mall or the movies. They wanted to stay indoors and stay online. And I was really one of the last of my friends to start using the internet. But in order to maintain my friendships, I had to. That's where all of my friends were. So broke down, got a screen name, got online, and started talking to my friends in school. And let me tell you, back then, it was like a middle school utopia. It was incredible. My friends were there. And then we all got along. So it was... Cyberbullying wasn't yet a thing. Kids really didn't know that that was a method or a way to use to be bullied and to bully each other. Everybody got along and it was the great leveler. The popular kids were talking to the not so popular kids. and It was just a really comfortable, safe place. Now for me, I was a quiet, shy child. I was the kid who did not raise their hand in class. I was the kid who did not speak up. I was always really nervous, which is funny because now I talk all the time. This is what I do. But back then, oh my gosh, no, I was so, I was that kid. And it wasn't that I wasn't popular, but I was the kid who kind of maybe felt like wallpaper sometimes. Like I was just there. I had friends, but I was in that sort of middle group. And Online, I felt like I could be myself, that I could speak up more. I didn't have to hear myself talk. I felt just more comfortable. 
And most importantly, I felt safe. This was my home and nothing and no one had ever hurt me here before and nothing and no one ever could. My parents sat down with me and they talked about stranger danger when it came to the internet, but that didn't work and it still won't work because I was talking to my friends from school and then they would introduce me to their friends or online, you feel so, you feel connected so quickly that you feel like you know somebody and that certainly has not changed. And my parents, like I said, they tried to talk about stranger danger, but that didn't translate into the online world. The other issue is that they didn't know much about the computer. Like I said, the internet, the computer, it was all very new and most adults didn't know much about it. And so we had our own secret little world. This was ours as kids and kids don't get that. It was like a clubhouse or a treehouse, if you will. And it's not that our parents weren't invited in, though they definitely weren't invited, that they could not physically climb up the ladder to get in. This was ours. And because of that lack of knowledge on, on me, that I didn't know the dangers and that my parents didn't know the dangers and that really nobody knew the dangers, there was no safety net. And I was online feeling comfortable spending time with my friends, spending a lot of time online, because again, that's where kids were all the time. And if you can remember, this was back when your computer had to be plugged into the wall. You had the giant tower, the cord that went for the, there wasn't Wi-Fi. If your mom picked up the phone off the internet, you were thrown. It was a big yes. thing. It was all very complicated back then. And it makes me think now that if this phone only worked in a certain corner of the house, that's where people would spend almost all of their time. It hasn't mm -hmm. changed much today. But there I was in a chat room and I was talking to my friends and somebody was introduced to me through a friend who I thought was a boy around my own age. And I was naive. I was the kid who really believed, and I still believe this, but that the world was really good. And that, yes, bad things happened, but they happened to other people and in other places. And that that was something for books or movies, like that was like Jafar or something, right? Like this wasn't, that never crossed my mind. And because I said, because I was who I said I was, I trusted this person to be who they were. I never thought, okay, well, they may have a, a nefarious plan, that this is just a kid. And what I didn't know was he had immediately begun to groom me. And grooming is really quite simple. It's just pretending to be a child's friend, telling them what they want to hear versus what they need to hear. And People diminish what children go through. People diminish the struggles because it seems like, okay, you got a bad grade, not a big deal. Yes, that's a huge deal to a kid. Oh, your crush doesn't like you. That's a huge deal. Your friends called you a mean name and now you're outside of the circle. These are all really big, huge things. Kids go through so much. And what a predator's goal is, is to find that vulnerability that we all have, but children most especially have, and exploit it. And by simply seeming like a friend. And through this process, they become the only person that this child 
is really understood by, that this is the one true person who really gets me. And with that, the predator starts to pull the child away from the people who could help them. They kind of, in some ways, turn the child against family or friends. And not in a, your, your family is bad way, but in your family just doesn't get you way. They don't make you as happy as I do. They don't make you laugh the way that I do. They don't understand that I, I love your favorite movie. It's my favorite movie too. It's not their favorite movie. So with that, really, it is in many ways like brainwashing. It's taking apart this child bit by bit and putting them back together. And I know that that sounds kind of silly, but you have a child who, who is one way in the beginning and then interacts with the world differently throughout this process. And throughout my story, through my story is a really good example of that. Now, grooming is subtle. You may not recognize it at all. In fact, that's the whole point of it, is that it can take a really long time, yes, but that it is so effective and so subtle and you don't even know that it is happening. And in many of these cases, the conversations around sexuality will be introduced. And now that's a conversation you can't have with your, or you don't necessarily want to have with your parents or your friends. Mm-hmm. And this person you can feel comfortable having those conversations with. Or often what these predators will do is they will begin to push boundaries and values and want to have that child send photos. They want to break this child down. And it is so effective and so simple. Well, I didn't know that I was being groomed. There were no red flags. There wasn't anything to stand out that this was somebody who I just thought was a friend. And on New Year's Day 2002, I was having a family meal. We were celebrating the new year. And I can remember, I I hold on to that memory because it is the before. It is if everything just continued on that night and it stayed on that path, then everything would have been so different. And we were having this beautiful meal celebrating the new year. And I asked my mother if I could be excused from the table because I had a stomach ache. And she said yes. And in her mind, I went upstairs to lie down and to feel better. But in reality, I got up, I slipped out of the front door, past the Christmas tree that was up, and into the coldest, darkest, iciest night that you can imagine. Now, to tell you how effective grooming is, I was a child who was scared of the dark, hated the cold, and still hate the cold with a passion and never went outside alone after dark. Yet on this night, I walked out of my front door between dinner and dessert without a coat. I left the door open just a little bit because I was planning on coming right back through it. And I was going out to meet a friend. I don't know why. To this day, I can't tell you how, why I made that decision, but kids don't always make the best decisions. This was not a good decision. This was a huge mistake that only co- that almost cost me my life. 
but kids make mistakes and an adult should never exploit those mistakes. I walked up the street just about a block or so and I can remember it being really quiet and really beautiful. The snow had just fallen, people's Christmas lights were up, this was my neighborhood and I felt safe. I did. And I walked up and then I realized there was nobody there. And in that moment, this little voice spoke up and it said, Alicia, what are you doing? Turn around, go home. And this voice is my intuition. This voice is my intuition. Please teach the people in your life, teach your children, teach yourself to listen to their intuition because it is there for a reason. And how I kind of look at this is that this was the first time that I was out of out of my routine. I wasn't in school. I what my parents weren't around. I wasn't at the computer, so he wasn't in my brain. This was me and myself in a quiet environment. And in that moment, that voice spoke up, and I listened to it. Turn around, go home. And I saw my house, which was just a block away. It was right there. And I went to turn around and next thing I knew I was in a car and this man was squeezing my hand so tightly that I thought he'd broken it. And he was barking commands at me, be good, be quiet. The trunk's cleaned out for you. And he forced me to look into the back seat and there was a bag back there that had a bunch of restraints and, and things like that in it. People often ask me, when did you become afraid? And well, it was immediately. Immediately, I knew that I was no longer in control of my life and that everything I thought, said, or did could be my last. And all of those things that I thought, said, or did really mattered. And my goal was to not end up in that trunk. I'd seen movies, I'd seen TV shows, bodies go in the trunk. And if I could stay out of the trunk, I thought that I had a much better chance of living through this. He drove and drove and drove, and I saw the street signs go from familiar to not recognizing him at all, at all. And then eventually he hit a toll booth. And I remember having this surge of hope, thinking this is it. This is the moment that I'm, I'm going to be rescued because this person is going to look into this car and he's going to, or she's going to say, hey, happy new year, where are you going or whatever and be chatty because I can remember they really kind of used to be a bit more talkative and they would give like a lollipop or something. And then I, at that point would be brave enough to say, help me, I've been kidnapped and this would all be over. He threatened me again and I could not stop my tears. So I figured that this person would see me crying and would ask and then report something. Surge of hope, surge of hope, surge of hope. Well, he got to the toll booth, the money was exchanged, the gate went, went up and nothing happened. And I, I think back to that person and imagine that they've heard my story and they may hear it all the time and think, oh, that's me. Oh no, that's my fault. And it's not their fault. You can't go through life searching for evil. That's not a good way to live. Evil doesn't always announce itself. It doesn't make itself present, but you can be trained to recognize signs. And those signs were definitely there. This person didn't have the knowledge then, so they couldn't react the way that they needed to. 
now because of the work I and a lot of other people do, they would now be trained to potentially stop the situation. Well, he continued driving and it was about five hours from Pittsburgh to Virginia. And eventually he got to his house and he dragged me out of the car, dragged me into the house, down a flight of stairs into a basement. And there was a door with a padlock on it. He unlocked the door, opened it, tossed me inside, followed him behind. And this room was pitch black. He picked me up like I weighed nothing because I basically did at the time. I was really tiny and propped me up on a table and forced me to look at him. And he said, this is going to be really hard for you. It's okay if you cry. And then he turned on the light and covering the walls were all these devices. And this looked like, like somewhere where you would torture somebody. And that's, that's what it was. The media has called it a dungeon. And I don't like to use that word because I just, I don't like to say it, but that's what this was. And after that, he put a locking dog collar around my neck with another padlock and he raped me for the first time. Over the next four days, I was raped and beaten and tortured. He broke my nose in one of the struggles. He didn't feed me. People ask a lot, did you think he was going to kill you? And it wasn't a question of if. I knew that he had to get rid of me. That this wasn't a situation where I'd not seen his face, that I was blindfolded, that he could send me home and I wouldn't tell anybody. None of that was going to work. And I, I knew that. I knew that my only chance of survival was to stay alive long enough for somebody to find me. And I'd always been interested in psychology. And I'd read different books and maybe watched a few documentaries, but something instinctually, but also from a combination of that, jumped into my brain. And part of it was also because this was just after 9-11. It was right after September 11th, and there was a lot of conversation about hostage situations. People were talking about how to survive in a hijacking or in a hostage situation or something like that. And I remember seeing that and for whatever reason, it popped up in my brain. And what my brain said to do was, you need to make yourself be seen as a person and not an object. That it is harder to take the life of a human being than it is to kill an object. And that's how he saw me. He saw me as an object. So my goal was to do whatever I needed to do to survive. And I knew that the minute I was of no use to him, which is a horrible thing to say and a horrible way to say it, but the minute that I didn't give him anything, I wasn't fun anymore, that he was going to kill me. So I did whatever I had to do to survive, no matter how humiliating or sick or brutal or disgusting, I did it. And that was where I found my strength and my power. When you're in a situation where you are completely powerless, this person decides 
every single thing that you will do if you eat, if you sleep, if you are able to go to the bathroom, if you're going to get to breathe, if you're going to live, they have the power over everything. And you search for you search for ways to get your own power. And that was my power was to get to the next moment. My power was literally to survive from one moment to the next. That if I could survive a minute, then maybe I could survive 10 minutes. And if I could survive 10 minutes, maybe I could survive five hours. And if I can survive five hours, maybe I can survive the day. And that was what my brain did. And that was sort of how I tried to, I must have take control of the situation, but there was no way to take control that's, but to take control of what I could do, where I felt that I was doing something to help myself get through this. On the last day, which I didn't know was the last day, he looked at me and he said, I'm beginning to like you too much. Tonight, we're going to go for a ride. And I knew at that moment that this sort of psychological game I'd been playing to get him to see me as a person was working because now we'd become attached. And that didn't help. He was going to need to get rid of me quicker. And after that, he fed me for the first time. And then he left for work. And it's amazing the questions, the assumptions, the judgments that people will put against you as a survivor, as a survivor of any trauma, but most certainly sexual assault. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you try to jump out of a window? Why didn't you become MacGyver? Why didn't you know all these things that people think that they would do if they were in that situation? Please don't ever do that. Whatever that person did was exactly what they needed to do to survive. And that's brave. That's what they needed to do to survive. So it doesn't matter what you think you would have done. None of that counts. You will not be 13-year-old Alicia locked in that basement, chained to the floor. And because of that, you can never say what 13-year-old Alicia should or should not have done and what any survivor should or should not have done. For me, I'd been completely traumatized. I'd been terrified. And I was sort of starting to give up hope. I knew that this was the day he was going to kill me. So I was in an incredibly dark place and figured that he was playing a game where if I screamed, if I did anything, he would come in and kill me. Again, like I said, this was about just staying alive. So if I took a big chance in that moment, then he was going to kill me quicker. Time passed and I sat quietly. I cried, I prayed, and I thought about my family. And I thought about the fact that I knew that they were looking for me and that I really believe, and I still believe this in, in some ways, just not with that childhood perception that I had, but that my parents could and would and would do anything possible to keep me safe, no matter what that meant. If they had to go wake the president up and steal Air Force One, that's what they were going to go do. 
if they had to find a wicked witch in the woods and go make some sort of spell, that's what they were going to go do. They were going to do anything and absolutely anything that was, I was going to say within their power, but actually beyond their power, because that's how much they loved me. And that they were going to do any of those things to find me. And gosh darn it, they were going to find me. I just needed to be alive long enough for them to do that. And I remember having this thought and then I got really strong, like in my, in my survival thoughts, I thought, okay, I'm going to fight. I, I got this really bit of a sense of bravery. And I thought, okay, what would I do if I were bigger, if I were stronger, if I were a superhero or one of the action heroes in the movies that I've seen, what would I do? And then I very quickly realized that I tried to fight and that did not work. And that I was not going to be able to do that. That this was going to be a fight to the death and he was going to overpower me. There was no way for me to fight my way out of this. And then I said to myself, I'm going to die. And I gave up all hope. It went from being this high point to the lowest I'd ever felt. And I think the lowest anybody could ever feel. I'd given up. And I thought about my family in a very different way. And I get really emotional with this because I, I talk about feeling powerless, but this is where I felt the most powerless. When was the last time I told my mom or dad or my brother or my grandmother or anybody that I loved them and not like, love you too, good night, but I love you. Did they know how much I loved them? Did they know that I didn't run away? Did they know that that I was okay. And by that, I know that sounds a little weird to say. All I wanted them to do was know that I was okay. And by okay, I don't mean living. I don't mean getting through this situation. I mean that I would be okay with the terrible outcome. And I wanted them to be okay. I wanted them to be able to move forward and and to comfort them and to strengthen them. And I couldn't, I couldn't be there for them to help them through this. And then I would probably never get to be there for them again. So I started to accept my own death and I drifted off and I don't mean necessarily sleep, but I drifted off into disassociation. I went away. And time passed, hours passed. And I was brought back to awareness. At this point, I don't know if I said this before, at this point I'd been chained to the floor in his bedroom. So I was upstairs in this house. And I heard these voices banging on a door downstairs. It sounded quite angry, screaming something about having guns or something. And in my terrified state, I rolled underneath the bed to try to hide from them, thinking that he had sent people to come kill me. Not that this was anything else, that he, like I said, I'd given up at this point and that this was in no way going to be anything good. So I rolled underneath the bed to try to, to hide from them, to figure out the situation, to be as quiet as possible. And I heard, movement over there 
and I watched these boots walk from one side of the bed to the side that I was hiding under. And this man in this very terse voice commanded that I crawl out and I put my arms up. And I can remember crawling out from underneath of that bed, dragging that cold, heavy chain behind me, trying to cover myself because I had no clothing on, putting my hands up and looking up and staring into the barrel of a gun and thinking, this is it. This is the moment I'm going to die. But then he turned around and I saw that it was law enforcement by what was written on the back of his jacket. And all these officers and agents rushed into the room, literally cut the chain from around my neck and set me free and gave me a second chance at life. I am so incredibly lucky to have survived this. Statistically, children don't survive the first three hours. In most cases in a stranger abduction, children are murdered within the first three hours. This was day four, and there was no day five for me. And I, I firmly believe that. Had they not come that day, in fact, at that hour, I would not be here. They came into the home, broke into the home, whatever you want to call it, around 4.15, and he was due to arrive home, from what he had said. And I hate saying home, because this was not a home, but he was due to arrive back there around 4.30. Had they had a flat tire? Had they stopped for coffee? Had they just said, hmm, we don't feel like doing this today, we don't believe but we don't think it's actually real, I would not be here today. And when I say it being real, what happened was while he had me, he was live streaming what he was doing to me to other people online. So he was broadcasting this live. And somebody who was watching this was able to recognize me from my National Center for Missing Exploited Children poster that had been sent globally. And he was able to recognize the little girl in this horrendous live stream as the little girl on the missing poster. And he contacted law enforcement and they were able to trace down the IP address through one of the screen names that the perpetrator had used. It was a miracle and it was essentially one bad person coming forward about another. But here's what that makes me think. And I tell myself this because I know that there's so much evil in this world. There is unbelievable amounts of evil and evil people in this world. But there is so much more good. There's so much, so much more good. And good just has to be louder. So we have somebody there who did the the right thing for maybe not exactly the right reason. So when you have good doing good for the right reason, how much more powerful is that? That is an unstoppable force, but we have to speak up. Good has to speak up. Good has to, to stand up for what is right and be brave enough to do that. Evil, all the darkness of the world, hides in darkness and in secrecy and by speaking up we can shine a light on it and by shining a light on it we can examine it and we can fight it we can understand it 
if we say, okay, well, that's happening. Yeah, I get it. That's happening, but that's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my family. This is happening to other people and it's so big and so terrible. It's not a problem that we can actually solve. So let's just ignore it. That's not going to help. Ignoring the situation, pushing it under the rug will never make it better. It will only grow and grow and grow. Can I ask you too, I know that a lot of your advocacy these days, and we touched on this in the beginning a little bit, focuses on what we can do as caretakers and as parents, um, very practical and, and simple tips that we can remind our, our kids of. Can you just give us a little bit of information, maybe even some specific lines to start conversations with kids on internet safety? Because I know there are parents out there who really want to tackle this, but they want to make sure they're saying the right thing. So what's like a line that you say? to a mom or dad that they can then sort of open the conversation with for their kids? What parents need to do is first, they need to educate themselves. There is so much to learn. I learn something new every day. It's it's wild how much there is to learn with acronyms and, and the fact that emojis mean so many different things and that's changing every day. And there's a new app. There's literally a new app every day that kids are rushing to. It's so it's moving so quickly. You need to start. Sit down and educate yourself. Learn what you can. And then you have to monitor what your children are doing online. Parents sometimes are so concerned about the child's privacy. And I understand that this isn't about getting your kid in trouble. Not at all. So say you put a monitoring device on and you find out that your kid tried a cigarette. Horrible, completely against the rules, all of that. You find out. You don't pick up the phone and say, hey, I saw that you did this. That's not what it's about. It's not about getting your child in trouble. It's about keeping them safe. And so you are able to, you need to be able to pick up that device at any point Mm -hmm. in time, anytime be able to log in. So you need to know all the passwords and you need to be able to go through it. Don't like put it. I, I saw a tip the other day that said, put it on your calendar to check your kid's device. You're, I get that. Okay, fine. What if your kids, oh, like they're going to know that, the, okay, that's when I go delete it and I make my screensaver, like a picture of me right. and mom, right? Right, right. Or my background image, right? So that you have to be a little sneaky. I know that sounds terrible, but It's not about getting them in trouble. It's about being ahead of the danger. So that's really important. But what is most important is having an open line of communication with your child, being able to talk to, letting your child know that they can come to you with absolutely anything at all. And and you hear that, oh, I'm really close with my mom or I'm really close with my dad. What does that really mean? Well, it really needs to mean this. It needs to mean that it needs, It needs to be that your child can come to you with literally anything at all without fear of punishment or taking the device away. Kids are so afraid that if they come to you, you're going to take away their phone or their tablet or their gaming system. And of course they're terrified. That is their connect. And right now that is their only connection really to the outside world and to their friends. So you are taking away their ability to connect with anybody. And that's something I'll ask kids a lot. I'll, I'll say, would you tell your parents this? Or would you tell your parents that? And okay, well, why wouldn't you tell them? And the answer is almost always, I don't want to get in trouble. 
So let your child mm. know that that's not what it's about, that they can come to you with anything, that your, and this seems young and it's not, your nine-year-old daughter can come to you and say, dad, I took this photo. I wasn't wearing anything in it. I sent it to somebody and now they're threatening me. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And you stay calm. As right. calm as you can. Which would be insanely difficult, but be. you're right. You sit down. You sit at the table, maybe make a cup of cocoa, cookies, whatever, and you sit down and you tell them how proud you are of them for coming forward. You make this a good habit because there are going to be instances in their life where they need to ask for help and that it's okay to ask for help. And you solve the problem together, that you support them, that you love them, that you're proud of them. And that's it, that they are not bad. Yes, they made a bad choice. They made a mistake, but that does not make them a bad kid. It does not change your perception of them in any way. It doesn't make you love them any less or respect them any less or want to take away their device. But that this is happening, that everybody's online. Predators are online. Kids are online. My kindergarten teacher is online. Everybody's online. <laughs> and so there's going to be different dangers that children can fall into. My story with child abduction is really on the far end of the spectrum, but there are so many other dangers. There's cyberbullying. There's child sexual exploitation. There's so many horrible things that can happen. Again, one not being worse than the other. I'm not saying that. But that kids need to know that they can ask for help. I believe that nearly every child is going to be the victim of something online because that's where they're spending almost all of their time. So they need to know that they can come to you. And then that you need to know that you are not a bad parent, that this happened, that it's not because you did something wrong. Maybe you were a little too lenient. Maybe you gave them the advice too early. Yeah, I get that. But that's not your fault. You're not to blame. Something happened and you got ahead of it. And now you can be more careful going forward. And that's what it's all about. It's about constantly improving. This next interview is so special to me because it's with someone whose words I have read and admired for so long. This is activist, feminist, and award-winning author L.R. Nost, who's become known in internet circles as the go-to expert on gentle parenting. I know I have browsed her Instagram page and her words many times, often in the middle of the night while I was nursing a baby, to not only get advice but also get perspective on parenting. Often, especially in the early days, those challenges and that exhaustion can feel all-consuming. But L.R.'s writing brings us back and allows us to take a broader picture of the challenges we might be experiencing raising our humans. She has such wise words on how to raise good people. I know you'll love her words as much as I did. What's the one piece of advice you would give a first-time pregnant mom? Anything that, um, anything that you can think of that could be something that you experienced or came up with on your own or something that someone told you? Um, that's really a broad range because first-time pregnant mom can be anything from a, a young teenager like me right. uh, to someone that's you know in their thirties having their first baby. It can be someone with you know all the baggage from their childhood, like like I had, or somebody that you know maybe had a lot of you know maybe siblings and and had a lot of experience, you know, and and so you know to 
to kind of package that down into, into, you know, one piece of advice, I think, you know, again, it would be not acknowledging the the vast array of, Mm -hmm. of human experience that's out there. You know, what I would say to pretty much any pregnant woman is, you know, you are going to have a relationship with this other human being put the relationship first, mm-hmm. you know, all the pieces and parts of things that people are saying to you, the things that you're reading, all of the, all the pressures of society and the different things like that. Take all of that, learn from it. You know, there's a lot of wisdom out there. That's great stuff, but focus on the relationship with the other human in your life. Do you feel like you had to parent all of your kids slightly differently? So much. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Me. I wasn't, pre- I don't know. It feels foolish to say that out loud, but I, I wasn't prepared. I'm still surprised to this day how yeah. different things. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess that's yeah. a universal experience. Well, because so they you, are all individual humans. They are. And, but you would think that they being blood related and, you know, from the same two people, I'm like, how and and for a long time I not a long time for a period of time I guess because I'm still a relatively new mom I would question if that made me a bad mom because I adjusted my parenting styles because much like you said I would hear critiques or commentary from people who would say you're the mom you tell them exactly what it is which okay yes kids like stability but it, it never felt right to me to you know, to, to speak to them in the same way. I mean, one might be more sensitive than the next. And I always wondered if that was like a flaw in me as a mom, that I was constantly adjusting my sort of methods. But it's good to hear that you do that too, because if oh, you're doing it, that makes me feel better. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, the, the way I look at it and the way I sometimes explain it to other people is uh, my husband and I have the exact same color eyes. We yeah. both have green eyes. Yeah. We have six children. One of them has green eyes. That's crazy. One of them has deep, deep, dark chocolate eyes. One of them has like warm milk chocolate eyes. One of them has eyes that change from gray to green to blue. Just this hazel, this beautiful hazel eyes. And one of them has bright, bright, bright blue eyes. Oh my gosh. Because crazy. green eyes apparently carry all the different varieties. Oh, I didn't know okay, that. That I, makes I, my blue eyed daughter makes sense There's now. some, there's some science in there. <laughs> I don't know. Something about science. But either way, so I, I can physically look and see see that all of my children inherited these differences. Mm-hmm. So how would that not also apply to them as human beings? I mean, you know, the eye color is simple. Mm-hmm. You know, the humanity, the person is complex. Mm-hmm. So to expect humans to all come out like cookie cutters, you know, that really is, you know, maybe a fallacy that, that of, of expectation that, that has been passed along to us. Mm-hmm. But I think what we should expect is for a human to be the exact human that they are mm-hmm. and to need to learn their love language and to need to learn, you know, how to approach them. Some of my children know I do time ins with children. What was instead that? Of Tell time, me more. time ins just is, as opposed to time in. When somebody's having a big emotional meltdown, yeah. um, instead of, you know, go get yourself together and then we'll talk, it's let's work through this together. So time in just means let's work together through the big emotions, whether it's a toddler having a tantrum or whether it's a 13-year-old on her period who just can't cope with life. You know, time in means we're, we're in this together and mm-hmm. let's do this together. So just taking the case of a toddler, um, I had these little calm me jars that I made and they just have like little sprint, little uh, glitter in them. And we've been, we make them together different colors and of course glue the lid on because, you know, they're going to get tossed. Um, and like I had one child that just, she just would get so mad. She just couldn't articulate what she was mad about. She's always mad at all older sibling, but she, you know, and so I would, I would say, which call me jar do you want? Do you want hello princess kitty dolly? I think it was, or, or do you want starry, starry night? And she usually like starry, starry night or Nemo wonders the sea was the other one. 
Um, and she'd describe it, and she'd jump up and down, and she'd shake it, she'd shake it, she'd shake it. And after she had, like, you know, kind of tired herself out a little bit, um, we'd sit there and we'd watch the glitter fall. And it was literally just this calming moment. And I, and I, would, I would talk to her about, okay, let's breathe in through our nose. And, and I would kind of talk her through, like, and what I was actually doing was teaching her the life skills mm-hmm. of taking your anger acknowledging your anger, but not taking it out on another human being, mm-hmm. finding a way to channel anger in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. And then I was walking through the steps of how to calm yourself and bring yourself back to a place of peace. Mm-hmm. Once we were back to a place of peace, she could articulate, I could articulate. She was then open to whatever guidance she might need at that point, which, you know, they do need guidance. Absolutely. Um, and, but, but we just, you have to guide from that. You have to guide them back first to that place of calm and peace before they're open to your guidance of, you know, behavioral guidance or whatever else. And did you start to notice that after a period of time she was self-soothing in that way without the need for a prop or something? Yeah, like, after a while she would come to me already with the calming jar in her hand and it would already be in the settling process and she would already have been jumping in bed down or, you know, whatever. That is a genius idea. So specifically with regards to um, discipline, what are some other like tools in the toolkit of gentle parenting? Can can a parent say of let's let's go with the age range of um, toddler to you know young child? What are some other good tactics we can have? For example, a child who is experiencing either a tantrum or having um, you know had a difficult day at school. What are some other like tools that you bring out from your toolkit? Uh, well, I, I think the first issue is to separate discipline from punishment. Um, I think, you know, if, if you look at the etymology, if you look at the, the beginnings of those words, you can see that they, they, ha- they, they come from separate things. You know, to punish means to inflict something on someone, and to discipline comes from disciple, which means to teach someone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one is to in, inflict, basically take retribution. Um, and the other one is to guide and to teach and to lead. And so um, when we talk about gentle discipline, we're not talking about gently punishing someone, um, what we're talking about is guidance and leadership mm-hmm. and, and teaching someone. So I think that's really an important distinction to make. Um, I wrote, and I'm probably going to get my own quote wrong because I have to look up my own quotes all the time, but I wrote, <laughs> discipline is helping a child solve a problem. Punishment is making a child suffer for having a problem. Oh, to raise problem solvers, focus on um, solutions, uh-huh. not retribution. So I think it was something along, along those lines. <laughs> it's, it's like you're a writer, Ella. So it is. It is I, I literally you do have to look so up my own stuff because I will misquote myself. Well, can, can I give you an example and you can maybe tell me how you would handle this? Sure. Uh, we have a lot of parents of, of younger children who might um, be in bigger schools for the first time. What if a kid comes home and says, Mom, I feel like someone is bullying me. This person has made fun of me for X, Y, Z. Um, what do you, where do you start with something like that? Because I think the initial reaction for a lot of parents is they want to protect their kids from that type of pain. So where would you start with that situation? The, the first place that you, I, I think you should start with any situation is listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Fred Asking Rogers, questions? yeah, Fred Rogers said listening is where love begins. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's always the place to start with any situation, whether it's that situation or a different situation, a child having a problem with teacher or a child having a problem with, you know, you know, any, any situation, you know, if a child comes to you, I have a problem. Um, just listening, letting them talk it through, not kind of jumping in and peppering them with questions right at first, not, you know, trying to, you know, pull information or details out of them. Just let them talk. Um, sometimes it's all they need is to kind of talk things through. And then as they sort of wind down, you can almost kind of feel them circling around to their own solutions to things. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, you know, um, having built a trust relationship that, that they feel they can come to you with their problems, um, you also trust them in return. And, and I think that's maybe a, a, 
a bridge too far for some people is the idea that you can trust your children too. Um, but when you hear them kind of circling around to a solution, instead of jumping in to propose our solutions, um, that's when we can start asking questions. You know, well, well, how how do you think, you know, you might approach that tomorrow? How do you think this could be best handled? What do you think should happen next? You know, just just you know, sort of a list of of questions. You know that are not leading them to your own answers, mm-hmm. but that are opening them to, to you know, con- to continue the process that they started mm-hmm. um, and, and just helping them, again, guidance, leadership, teaching, you know, and you're walking them through this problem-solving steps. Now, there will always be problems that our children cannot solve by themselves, and we should never hesitate to step in when needed. We just, going through that process of listening, going through the process of, of asking questions and letting them, you know, process through things and, and, and helping them to learn that, just sort of partners with them in, in the problem-solving process. But then if it reaches a point where an adult needs to step in and handle mm-hmm. it, um, then at that point you would say, you know, here's what I think I would need to do in this situation. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And again, it's partnering with your child. Asking what they think. Right. And right. asking what they think, getting feedback from them. What do you say to people who are critical of this style of parenting because they say that it um, sort of diminishes the hierarchy, it takes away the authority of the parent? I would say that the hierarchy needs to be diminished. I, that, that's that's my, my absolute reaction. Um, we, as you know, as a society have a lot of structural things that need to change. Um, there is, there is, you know, there are, there are pipelines into upper management. There are pipelines through certain, you know, high level schools and, and families. Um, I just read a study yesterday where more than 70% of, of upper level jobs are filled without the job ever having been posted. They're filled in house through, who knows who. Right. Okay. What that does is mean that for 70% of the time, nobody else has an opportunity mm-hmm. to enter that level of management, which is, you know, where you get those glass ceilings, which mm-hmm. is where you get these structural racism where, you know, that's what holds those structures in place. You know, that begins in the home. Mm-hmm. When we have these instant obedience, you know, you do as I say, not as I do, you know, do, do what I say without asking me questions or thoughtfully considering my words or even considering what I'm saying is right or wrong, you know, or bringing your opinion into it at all. When, when we grow children in those very authoritarian, you know, um, atmospheres, you know, they're not going to recognize those authoritarian structures then when they get into the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're literally grooming them just to be consumers. We're grooming them just to be followers and just to become a cog in a machine as opposed to recognize where the machine might need to be tweaked or dismantled entirely and, and restructured in a way that offers opportunity and advancement for everyone that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that has – the, the desire to do so, the talent to do so, the education to do so, you know, and, and things like that. So um, I think that my answer is we need to stop with the hierarchy ideas in our homes. We need to stop with the, you know, I'm the ultimate authority in our homes. And we need to stop, work, we need to start working from a place of we need to be partners in our homes. Now, this next clip I had to include because it's vital information for C-section moms. Anjali Patti is the founder of Kashaya Probiotics, a yogurt-based probiotic that I have taken and absolutely loved. And in this episode, she gives us a very quick but very good tip on how to introduce healthy bacteria into your baby's system if you had a C-section delivery. Now, I had a C-section delivery for my first 
my second and third were VBACs, but I wish I had had this advice before delivering by C-section. I know you will love this tip as much as I did. You brought up C-section yeah. delivery and the impact that that can have on the gut health of a child. Can you dive into what exactly is happening with the C-section and what, from a scientific standpoint, we should be looking to do as mothers to rebolster their systems? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're born, when babies are born, C-section, um, they're missing the initial inoculation. Um which is basically that initial bacteria that goes through the nose and mouth when they're born vaginally. Um, And that inoculation is probably the most important moment of the way the microbiome is seeded for the rest of our life because it's such a pristine environment that as soon as it comes into the world, they're immediately, you know, seated with that, that show is like a very important moment. Um, and so what happens during C-section is obviously we don't have that um, exposure, right? And so if, if a baby is breastfed um, after they're born C-section, usually some of that, some of that, um, you know, important bacteria low that they were missing can be replenished. Um, throughout the breastfeeding process, if the baby is breastfed through the first year, um, but if not, then again they're missing that really crucial um, bacteria, you know, that will set the tone for the rest of their lives. Really, that's what the 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 evidence has shown that that is the tone setter for the microbiome environment for the remainder of our lives. So it's 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 pretty big deal. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of mothers that, you know, have to have a C-section and there are a lot of mothers who can't breastfeed. And what you were saying is really important. So let me go there for, for a second. For for mothers who end up having a C-section, um, we do recommend that they take a little bit of um, like a gauze and kind of, you know, put it in their vaginal area before the C-section occurs and then inoculate the mouth and the um, nose with the gauze after the baby's born. Um, That has been shown to help a lot with now uh, breastfed babies. um, You know, if our non-breastfed babies, if, if you're not able to breastfeed, right, then we do recommend that you give a probiotic to the, to infants, even from, birth, but not necessarily Kashaya. You know, I, I recommend other baby probiotics um, that come in liquid form that you can use um, and then slowly, gradually introduce them to Kashaya because Kashaya does have coconut. And so I don't necessarily recommend that from that small. Starting at six months, it's perfectly fine to start slowly introducing something like that, uh, something like Kashaya. But um yeah, so that's kind of my recommendation. Does that does that make sense? Oh, that makes so much sense. That is the first time that I've heard about that gauze trick or hack. I had a, an emergency C-section and then two V-backs and uh, being hyper aware wow. of everything you just said. It was a priority for me to try to get a vaginal birth. And, and thank God, knock on wood, it worked yeah. out. But I, you know, there's just 
we as moms feel so guilty for things we were unable to do yeah. that we wanted to. And even to this day, you know, I, I'm hearing you talk and it's hard to not feel like a failure in some respect, but knowing there are products out there or there are ways to circumvent issues with good, you know, supplementation down the line is just, just so, it's just really encouraging. So I love that you provided us with a couple of sort of um, workarounds if any moms were in that position too, and if that's something they wanted to address. Here we are now with holistic wellness coach and intuitive eating expert, Shanna Windle. Her voice, first of all, is just so soothing. So you're going to love the clip for that and that alone. But this was an incredible episode where we dove into tending to our spirits, how to survive this crazy world if you're an empath, how to deal with childhood trauma, what rapid transformational therapy is, and so, so much more. Her wisdom is so incredible. Enjoy this clip. I want to talk about something that you have addressed in several blog posts on your site and that I really wanted to focus on today. Um, because when you saw it, or when you posted it, I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, I never really thought of that as an applicable topic to what we're going through today. But mm -hmm. you did this whole segment on honoring your inner child mm -hmm. and the fact that a lot of us, whether we know it or not, can carry the feelings of trauma from experiences mm -hmm. of our childhood. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily trauma like bad things physically right. have happened, but is everyone in some way a hurting inner child? Do we all have elements of our personality that show today mm -hmm. that are a result of what happened to us as children? Yes. So I like to call it big T or little T trauma. You know, some of us have had big T trauma in our childhoods. Um, those are the more severe cases. Um, and then we have little T trauma too, though. And, you know, trauma, I think, at least in the wellness industries, it, the word is getting thrown around so much that I think it's, there's a big question mark there as, you know, what is trauma? What, you know, when we're referring to it, a big question mark. Um, but the little T trauma, so it could have simply been, I don't know, your dad getting mad at you because you didn't get an A on a report card, you know, something as minor as the teacher yelling at you in a classroom when all of your friends were around, you got embarrassed and um, went into a shame cycle over that. There's, it doesn't have to be the big things that we used to think trauma were. There's also these smaller incidents that happen even in the best childhoods, you know, we don't, some of us had wonderful parents with wonderful childhoods. Even those people still had occurrences in their childhood that, yes, if you don't address them later in life, they're, they're, we all have that inner piece of us. Mm -hmm. I call it the inner child. There is that younger version of ourselves that because at whatever age, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve we experienced a certain circumstance or situation that our little brains couldn't process at the time. It just, we did not have the emotional capability of processing through the situation itself. So um, we just have kind of stored that within our systems. And when I talk about doing inner child work, it's going in and, 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 comforting that piece of ourselves because what we see come forward later in life in our years, I'm 39 this year as well, is, you know, we have these triggers that happen throughout our life and whether that's in relationships or jobs or family dynamics and you start to see a pattern with those triggers and 
you go, okay, well, here's the trigger. What, what happened? You know, what is it that my inner child needs in this moment? And for a lot of us, it's, I need to feel safe. I need to feel comforted. I'm overwhelmed right now. I'm scared right now. Or it can be something, I'm, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, there's these kind of core concepts that the inner child seems to carry throughout our lives that if we can be aware that we are being triggered in a situation and take a step back and away from the trigger itself, there really is an opportunity for very deep healing because if we don't heal that piece of ourselves, it will always call the shots. That little child that's in there is calling the shots. It's it kind of links into even our subconscious patterning. You know, mm-hmm. the subconscious mind dictates ninety five percent of our behavior. Only five percent of our conscious mind that you know we're using every day does anything with regards to our behavior. It's all from our early conditioning, our early. Um, patterning that we carry through. So how do you hone in on what your childhood issue is? What's the work that it takes to get there? Well, you can do it, uh, you know, being a certified hypnotherapist, I found that that's a great way to kind of unearth what it is, what were the circumstances that um, caused the issue that you are struggling with today. And will it come through like an anecdote, like one story that sort of is a symbol for the bigger Mm-hmm. issue? Does that, is that how it comes through in those sessions? Yeah. I mean, generally when I work with people, it's, we do three. So we'll go back to three different events throughout life. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, super young in life. Some people's experiences that were pivotal happened in their twenties. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one when they were six, there was one when they were 15 and there was one when they were 22, Right. you know, and It's very um, interesting to see just the thread of it all through people's lives and how it kind of has presented itself in different ways. Um, But yes, hypnotherapy is a great way to get into the subconscious piece of it and actually dig in and see what memories are there, what events cause the issue. And And after you identify that sort of trigger point, Mm -hmm. that childhood trauma, do you assign work to sort of directly address that or is it, and and how, how do you fix something that's so old and so ingrained? Yeah. So on the more sciencey side of it is we all have neural pathways in our brain. So I think of it as like a a racetrack. Um, and the car is driving on one racetrack, one loop, one Daytona loop, right? And that's the subconscious patterning that we've had. So we experience a situation, we default in our reaction to whatever that loop is that's played for our entire lives. And the great thing about doing subconscious work is you get in and you see, you, you create the awareness around why what that root cause was, why it's there, but then you start redoing that loop. You start ingraining a new neural pathway in your brain so that as situations in the future present themselves, you're on a new track. And right. it takes it takes practice. It's not like an overnight right. you're going to it's going to happen right away. So And how does that look practically? D- digging the dirt for the new track, so to speak. Like right. is that um talk therapy is that a mantra is that can be it can so the particular form that I practice rapid transformational therapy is um you know we do a session you uncover the root cause of things we start 
um, restructuring within the session itself. We start redoing the neural pathways, but then there's a three-week time period after I meet with people where they are listening to a personalized uh, meditation every day to really ingrain that new pathway within their brains. Wow. And how long are those recordings usually? How many times do you suggest they listen to them? Um, it's usually 15 to 20 minutes long, mm-hmm. and they're supposed to listen every day. Um, if they go more than two or three days without listening, then they need to start the 21 days over. But it's all, it's creating habit, a new habit, basically. Right. And there's, you know, you start to develop those new beliefs very early on in that three-week time period. But what people tend to see and need support around is, okay, I know that I carry this new belief now, yet here is a issue that I would have reacted in this way to that I know I don't need to react in that way because I've healed what I needed to heal. But now my family is responding to me in a different way. What do I do? Oh, that's interesting. So the ripple effect kind of. Oh, wow. I never thought of that. So it, again, is just making sure that number one, I personally give my clients the support that they need. And, you know, I call it whack-a-mole, you know, so they're... (laughs) You address one thing, one yeah. thing pops up, yeah. and you, you know, you oh just gosh. kind of batten Spiritual them down. Whack-a-mole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. So RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapy, mm-hmm. if we're going in as a potential client for this, mm-hmm. you, how many sessions do you usually take to see results? Yeah, it's usually, I mean, depending on the severity right. of the issue itself, um, two to three sessions. Wow. It's And what's the thought? Obviously, Rapid is in there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Is the thought behind this theory that it's working quicker and how is it working so much quicker than a traditional um, say therapy course would right so when you go in for a traditional like talk therapy right you're speaking on the conscious level to somebody so it's all about the brain waves that we get into when we do hypnotherapy itself so Beta is where we do traditional talk therapy. So that's our conscious mind. It's regular conversation. It's where we experience stress and anxiety. And then we've got the alpha waves, which we go into when for quiet time, you're in the shower, or if you like flying, you're in the, you know, on an airplane looking out the window, mm-hmm. whatever. Like that's alpha. That's the daydreaming type of brainwave that we get into. Delta is our sleep, so it's where we dream. It's that real, real deep um, and, and almost like a very, very slow brainwave that you see. Um, and then there's theta, which is where we do, if you meditate um, or we do hypnotherapy, it's, uh, it's deeper than alpha, um, but more conscious than delta. Okay. So what that allows us to do is once you get into that state, um, it's like meditating with a goal in mind is how I kind of equate. And what do people in that state, after they come out of a session, tend to tell you it feels like? Or do they have no recollection of the time spent in that theta state? Oh, no. They have a complete recollection. Oh, they do? What do they yes. tell you? Yes. Like, it's just like, it really is like going into a meditation. Because it's I'm something... always the type of person, now listen, the only time I've ever tried, big air quotes, <laughs> hypnotherapy was like at a resort in Mexico. The guy was like, watch this. You know, uh-huh. and then there's always the three people, they get legitimately hypnotized and you're like, this can't be real, right? Yeah. But then they're out there, you know, taking their shirt off and you're like, oh my God, they're really hypnotized. Yeah. I've always said, I'm unhypnotizable. Mm-hmm. Could you get me in a state, do you think? like, Because uh, there's going to be some critics out there like, oh, it just never works on me. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
most people, I would say 95% of the people are definitely able to get into the theta state. What is the one, as a spiritual person, a person who addresses um, spiritual health, what would mm-hmm. you want people to know to help them um, act better, do better, and in turn make the world better? If you could just give them, and, and this could be something small as, you know, like you were saying, mm-hmm. find time to yourself. It could be something as long as you want, but mm-hmm. people are grasping right now. So what would your advice be? Um, yes, taking that time every day to connect to yourself you know, we're watching so much unfold before us and in ways that many of us never expected to see. And that can be overwhelming. It can be anxiety producing. We don't have a lot of, we don't feel like we have a lot of control over what's going on, that things are happening to us. Mm-hmm. And that's a very difficult place to be in emotionally and spiritually. So the more that you can connect into who you are on the inside, Mm -hmm. the things that bring you peace and solace and comfort, the better off you're going to be going throughout your day. And when you're able to do that and get into that space yourself, those around you, the ones that you love or the ones that you're helping and society, you know, it's, it's, going to be that more beneficial Mm -hmm. to the people that you touch throughout your day too. But, you know, you saying you're an empath and a sensitive, a highly sensitive person, things like that, you know, we tend to try and fix, like, we just want to fix, 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 fix it all. You see an issue, you want to try and help, you want to, and it's all, it's important and we need to do that where we can. But when we start taking it all on ourselves is where we really start to run into an issue because we get depleted. And then once we're depleted, what what good are we to anybody? Right. So it really is connecting and figuring out those things that really help you to feel at peace and making sure you're, you're doing that first thing in the morning before you go into your day. And maybe the last thing that you do before you go to bed at night, you know, whatever that practice might be for yourself, um, just so that you're kind of clearing the energetic deck in the morning and at night. And I thought we would round out this best of episode with Lumi Palinku, our astrologer in residence, who helps us look at what 2021 has in store, literally in the stars. Astrologer Lumi Palinku walks us through what we can expect spiritually in the new year and how to protect ourselves and build up community for any challenges that might be ahead. There's some good stuff in this episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Now we're going to move towards the solar eclipse around December 14th. (laughs) And this is in Sagittarius. So the solar eclipse is basically like a super new moon. New moon's all about planting things, manifesting, visualizing your future goals. Now, in this case, I would not recommend anybody to do manifesting work. Um, Usually lunar eclipse season or eclipse season in general is not very, uh, it's like chaotic. It's a little like, uh, uh, you know, like out of the way, like or all over the place in terms of energy. So with the solar eclipse in Sagittarius, this is all about really reviewing the religions or not religions, but like the old dogmatic ideas, really releasing or questioning what was before, like what kind of systems we actually fell back upon. That also sets the tone for the year ahead leading up to what we're going to talk about for 2021. Um, So 
this is something that people will probably immerse themselves into studying different types of philosophies, theologies, spiritual wisdoms. Like that's like pretty much the overall theme of the year ahead. It's very okay. interesting. It's I have that information. Yes. So what is something we can practically do knowing that, you know, most people who are busy maybe won't take the time to like dive into understanding a new um, religion or something. Give us some small good takeaway in this eclipse season. You said December, was it 14th or something? Yes. So what can we practically do to harness our energy or protect ourselves or do something that helps us get ready for 2021? I'd say like always establish a link to a higher power. I, I firmly believe in the higher power for myself personally. That's why I'm called the celestial astrologer. I practice uh, prayer. I practice meditation. I practice little rituals like saging. I'm talking about just like clearing up the space and invoking a prayer of protection from angels. Like that's how, that's my approach to astrology. Usually before I do a reading, I'm putting myself into this first before I share with what other people could do. Um, now, for people, what they can do is just instill peace. Try to find space and time to quiet your mind and really focus in on your goals. Always try not to be sidetracked by the external influences. Okay. Let's dig into 2021. Um, sure. So we are we are in a, the the eclipse season to end 2020. You've mentioned there's like a little bit of chaos, so we need to find our peace, root and ground ourselves. Mm-hmm. What does the early part of 2021 look like? So there's also uh, two major transits happening this month, which I'm so happy to report. And that leads into the reason why I was mentioning information and communication um, and also technology. So Jupiter, the expander planet, as I was mentioned before, is moving to the sign of Aquarius. It was in Capricorn for the last two years. Now, that's going to be in Aquarius around December 17th. And Saturn's going into Aquarius around December 16th. So it's like within a couple of days range. Now, in this case, it sets the tone for forward thinking, innovations, going through different systems and really aligning yourself into collective causes. It really is interesting to see this happening because we are we have been in lockdown for some time and really isolated from others. But I feel like people are becoming more banded together and wanting to um, actually see how they can contribute to the world. It's like that kind of energy, I feel. Does that make sense, Sony? Absolutely. Yeah, that's promising. I mean, uh, practically speaking, is there anything that like I asked for the last thing that we can we can do to keep that energy balanced? For what do you mean? For you said we're getting to Jupiter, which is the expander planet. And I don't all I know is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And I feel like that was a bad that's thing. What's happening right now. Yes. So that's it's very, and that's really. why Aquarius like in flow coming through, actually. And um, the bad stuff. That's what I'm worried yeah, about. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you. Um, that's like one thing um to keep in mind. It's just like really co- um focus in on service, focus in on your way of how you're gonna contribute to mankind. Now the other shoe to drop. <laughs> is that it's going to be forming a square to the planet called Uranus. Now, Uranus has been in the the sign of Taurus since 2016. Now, in this case, the last time this happened was when the market crashed in the 1930s. The Great Depression happened. Oh, God. Right? But that's questioning how money is actually meant to be harnessed moving forward. Even in the Great Depression, they didn't really know how to deal with money at the time. They were really, really printing money like like a madhouse, like at the time, if you, you know, recall in history textbooks and everything. 
This time around though, it's really focusing in on how money will actually be used moving forward. Um, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. That's what I was gonna say, Bitcoin. Yes, and that's technology. And Uranus is actually the planet that is ruled by Aquarius. It's technology, innovations, going through earth shattering changes with the ways and means of how we make money. So our careers are gonna really change a lot too. Okay, wait, we need to like sort of distill this into like- Sure. Uh, potential scenarios. So this means this is a good time to like look into investing into Bitcoin. I was going to say that actually I wrote that like on my little, <laughs> when okay. I was writing down horoscopes. <laughs> Let me text my husband real quick. <laughs> but I, I say like invest your time into like really reading more into this technology systems in regards to the future trends with how money's meant to be harnessed. It's more okay. technology based most likely. So that's inevitable. I, I heard so many, I mean, not to evolve into a technological discussion, but people doubted whether Bitcoin would ever be used or accessible at like a mass scale or that people would understand it enough to, to use it. But I hear you saying the change is inevitable, at least. It's going to be different, though, like in terms of how money is going to be made. Like you probably noticed in restaurants lately, they're like, we don't take cash, we take credit. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> That's Uranus and Taurus in action. Like it's not in late degree. It's like still six or seven degrees right now. But you see how when it just began 2016, it wasn't really felt until now, four years later. So you know, okay. planets actually change signs. You actually feel the aftershock of effects later down the line. So okay. moving forward into how I mentioned before, Jupiter and Saturn going to a sign of Aquarius. This is going to be focusing in on our ideas and concepts and how we're going to actually contribute back to mankind. Now with the square to Uranus though, squares usually tensions in the chart, the overall chart. So it could be a clash of ideas. And mind you, if you see Uranus being in Taurus, that's an earth sign and Saturn and Jupiter and Aquarius, that's an air sign. You can only imagine those two elements together. You really can't get to anything at this point mm -hmm. because if you think about it, water and earth grows things fire and air spreads more light. So when it comes to the actual earth and air element, it's not touching yet. So yeah. in terms of the ideas and concepts, it's in mid air. It's not gonna be fully rooted just yet, but okay. I'd say just focus in, in on your actual thoughts and concepts and hold on to your vision and okay. focus on service. I'm just gonna say that. I'm not telling you to like enlist yourself to every nonprofit organization possible, but just I feel like the collective is feeling this need. I've noticed a lot of my clients are saying like, how am I going to give back? They're all, I feel it. And I, and I see it with people when they're talking to me, they're like, I want to give back to humanity. That's pretty much the age of Aquarius in the full effect. That's okay. the energy alone. So that's the positive end. Now for the growing trends of 2021, the words that I've noticed is just collaboration and networking. Like that's the one, those are the two words I've noticed. And that's usually Aquarius words. Um, you know, spreading knowledge, spreading ideologies, really collaborating. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I pretty much hear. Um, and I think like the overall, like, you know, beautiful part of 2021 is our a belief into actually contributing to others, like being very more collective based as right. opposed to personal based and just being closed off to different people. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed this best of episode and know how very much I appreciate you listening to this podcast. It is my true pleasure. It is seriously my joy in life 
to be able to connect with so many amazing people through these interviews and then pass on good information to you. I seriously, it, it's my it's my reason for getting up in the morning. Well, you know, my kids too and my husband. But this is a joy to me to bring this incredible information to you. I'm grateful to our guests who have given time to the show and have shared their hard-earned wisdom with us. And we have amazing things in store for 20, uh, 2021 as well. So let's go into next year with courage, with community, with bravery, and know that I am here for you in any way I can be continuing, hopefully to help you out with some good tips, tricks, and info along the way. Thank you so, so much for listening to this year-end episode of We Gotta Talk with Sunny. That was my daughter sitting on my lap. We'll see you in 2021 with goodness, everybody. Be well, be safe, and we'll see you soon. Say bye. Bye.